You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hey guys, and welcome back to The Myth Pilgrim. Today, I'm excited to be sharing with you part two of an interview I did with guest speaker, Danny Cote-Davis. If you've missed episode 22, which was the first part of our interview on the glorious death in The Lord of the Rings, uh, definitely there's something you can look forward to going back to after this episode. So just to refresh your memory, Danny is quite the Tolkien expert from the UK and is a teacher, a writer, and an artist, having trained as a bard with the UK Bard School for 10 years. He is also the founder of Silverion Camps, a Catholic medieval fantasy camp for 8 to 16 year olds which started in New Zealand and is looking to spread right around the world, which is very exciting, something to look out for. Danny is also one of the key spokesmen for the cause for the canonization of J.R.R. Tolkien, something which has fueled him to make a documentary called Tolkien About Faith, The Call to Beauty, which you can find on YouTube. So he's a pretty epic guy to have on the Myth Pilgrim really, and it was a great honour to chat with him. Today, we are going to focus on the man of Tolkien himself. So hence, I've titled uh, this episode, Tolkien, Author, Prophet and Mystic. Each of these three titles can easily be applied to Tolkien. And it was a great challenge to edit a otherwise very rich and very long interview to give you a flavouring of all three titles. Soon, we'll hear Danny first introduce a concept of mythos and Logos, two ideas that are central to the brilliance of the Lord of the Rings. But because I understand that probably most of you haven't studied ancient Greek philosophy, I thought I'd provide a quick intro into these ideas first. The great G.K. Chesterton once said that, and I quote him, the substance of all pagan myths can be summarized as an attempt to reach divine realities through the imagination. Let me say that again. The substance of all pagan myths can be summarized as an attempt to reach divine realities through the imagination. What Chesterton is suggesting is that before the historical event of Jesus Christ, the myths of ancient civilizations were actually humanities yearning for and reaching out to God at reaching absolute truth. In the same way that ancient philosophy sought to reach God through reason, Myths sought to reach God through the imagination. The same consistent themes of dying and rising gods, trees of wisdom, good versus evil, unbreakable vows, and the quest for immortality saturates all the great myths of the ancient world. But then, 2000 years ago, God entered into human history, an event which heralded the coming together of myth and reality. Mythos and Logos. Yep, so this is really at the heart of Tolkien. It's kind of like a seed that permeates all his writing. It's this relationship between Mythos and Logos. If you go back to the Gospel of John, the Logos is the principle of truth that is at the foundation of all reality. And it's also the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So this Logos underpins the whole of the cosmos. 
And myths are the way that the human spirit have reached up to the heavens for transcendence, have reached up to the heavens uh, for for uh, the logos, for for that which is beyond the creation, um, which is the truth eternal. And uh, Tolkien uh, very much thinks that a fusion or a marriage between the two happens um, because logos has become fact within the mythical story. Um, and he brings this out in his essay on fairy stories, and he says. Uh, that the incarnation is myth become fact. It's where myth, where all this dreaming and yearning and passion of the, the, the mythic heart is now coming to be true. And that's why gospel is evangelion. It is good news because the myth is true. The story is true. The yearning of the human heart has been confirmed. There is glory and eternal endurance uh, beyond death. Um, there is uh, something truly to behold um, in, in all of the story of the human person. How literature has come about through history, it's always been this relationship between mythos and logos, and Tolkien is very interested in the mythos. And what he says is that the mythos is rising up to try and touch the logos. That is what human literature has been doing all through history, is it's reaching out for the fun foundational truth and also the highest truth, which is the presence of God. And what he says happens, this is the absolute um, joy of Tolkien, literally the joy of Tolkien, which he writes in his essay on fairy stories, is that at the point where mythos is reaching out to the highest degree towards God, it becomes fact, because the incarnation is when the logos has become fact through mythos. Those two things are uniting and fusing together and uh, Christ is the one who unites mythos and logos forever in the fact of his incarnation. And he goes on to say that this is the beginning of joy. And then the end of the Christian story with the resurrection, the, eva the evan evangelion that Christ is risen is the end of joy. So he frames um, his perspective on reality between these two pillars of joy. Mm. I want to tease that open a bit more. That, that, that that's beautiful what you're sharing about the myth becoming reality because that, that that or fact because that became something instrumental um for CS Lewis's sort of conversion journey. Do you do you know about that little that exchange? Can you tell us tell listeners a bit more about it's, that? It's a fantastic story and um it's well documented that Tolkien and CS Lewis were having a evening stroll um and it was it was dark and they came across a tree and the leaves of the tree were falling um, in front of the moonlight. And it was a moment of enchantment. It was a moment of mystical beauty. And both of them were touched by this. And Tolkien at that point um, started to speak to C.S. Lewis about um, the Christian faith and sharing and evangelizing um, his friend who at the time was a uh, hardened agnostic. And uh, what came out of this exchange was a poem that uh, Tolkien wrote to C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis at that point said that myths were lies, but they were lies that were breathed through with silver. And this was uh, very triggering for Tolkien. Tolkien said to himself, this cannot be, this is not the way that <laughs> myths should be understood. They are not lies, because as we explained to our viewers, um, the mythos is reaching up towards the Logos and they join together in the incarnation when myth becomes fact. So actually myth is a preparation for the gospel. It's a proto-evangelion. And uh, so he writes a, a poem for C.S. Lewis, which is called the Philomethus to the Misomethus. And this is great for your myth pilgrim. The Philomethus is like the myth pilgrim. It's the one who loves the myth 
and the mythology as a way of communicating the truth. And the mythos is the one who's the miser of myths, who does not love the mythos and uh, does not think that it is actually true. Um, so Tol uh, Tolkien's position was on the one hand that myth was the way of communicating God. And C.S. Lewis was saying, actually, it's all a lie, even though it's very, very beautiful. And so he wants to change the way that C.S. Lewis perceives the cosmos to understand that it is actually um, a way of reading back into the Logos, uh, the presence of, mm. uh, of mm. Um, God. Yeah, yeah. That's so profound. There's... Okay, so so far we've you've done a fantastic exposition of how like kind of that that Catholic uh, understanding that, that the kind of the infusion of, of death and glory and and mythos all comes together. Could you tell us? Could you give us a brief snapshot of Tolkien's sort of um, his own experience as, as a man growing up, what, yeah, turn of the century? Um, there are some biographical details that are very important um, that show the kind of suffering that Tolkien endured. Um, he lost his father. Um, and at that point, the Oratorians uh, came on board to help uh, Mabel, uh, Tolkien's uh, mother, um, who was struggling financially because she was disinherited for her Catholic faith. It was still a time of uh, uncertainty in England towards the Catholic faith. And uh, there was the old uh, bias and persecution of mm. Catholicism. And Tolkien actually saw his mother as a martyr because she ended up dying um, in abject poverty. Um, and so the loss of his father and mother left him an orphan. Um, and actually, um, this was a point of um, unison with Edith, his wife, who was also um, orphaned. Uh, so together, they actually um, were on this um, zenith of grief um, and love, where the grief and love come together. But the Oratorians didn't abandon him, and they helped um, his formation. So he, he received a very good Catholic formation. Um, as a result of the, the, the coming together of the oratorians. Then he got involved with the um, TCBS, the Tea and Barovian Society um, at Oxford. It was a group of friends um, who got together to uh, understand more of, the, it was kind of a proto-inklings, um, reading the, 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 the great works and discussing them and also forming um, very powerful friendships as young artists. And of those um, original friends, uh, the, the majority of them died um, during the war. Um, this is so the First Tolkien, World War we're talking the first about. First World War, yeah. Tolkien uh, talks about empty chairs, um, the chairs where his friends uh, no longer sit. And uh, also he felt a kind of compulsion at that point to, to write stories uh, that he felt his friends would have communicated if they were still there. Um, so the suffering of uh, not only his uh, childhood, but also... Um, and, and he does specifically say that the death of his mother was a presence in his life, um, uh, which uh, permeates kind of the, the writing with this sense of grief and uh, lamentation. Um, but also he had an enthusiasm to write the stories that were never written by his friends. He wanted to be a torchbearer in the darkness and suffering of, of that um, loss. Um, so uh, you can see that that, that goes um, very deeply in the foundations of his biography, that suffering uh, coloured the way that his artistic creation came to be. Mm, yeah. And I suppose like we, I think this came out, there's a recent movie about Tolkien that came out, which sort of got mixed reviews. But one thing I did like about it was in the trenches of World War One, in this, in this horror, this sort of, you know, inhumane, indescribable suffering that was that seemed to be pointless ultimately 
um, he met Sauron himself. He saw in, you know, kind of like trench warfare in the the mechanized sort of, um, you know, indiscriminate killing of of young men. He's, a, you know, we're talking 19, 20, 21 year olds. He saw and met Sauron face to face. And so in a sense, we, we know reading that the Lord of the Rings, reading the the, the tremendous depths of, of evil and hatred that, that does exist. He has met it himself in his real life, but yet something has sustained him to kind of go, this isn't the end, this isn't the final word. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add about. Yeah, his point, uh, this is actually the point where the fighting the long defeat reaches this, um, this, this point where transcendence has to be the option. And I think this is actually something we can talk about in terms of the new evangelization and in terms of the culture today. We are faced with a culture of death, that death that began uh, with the, the 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 first and then the second world war, it brought a, it brought forth a, a new atheism, a rejection of the loving Creator, and um, it's precisely at this point that Tolkien wants to point towards transcendence. He wants to say, actually, mm-hmm. there is meaning. The cosmos is infused with meaning because the Creator is always at work, bringing about a providence that is uh, beyond our understanding. This is his kind of mystical intuition as well is that in the presence of suffering, in the presence of evil, in the presence of uh, what you might call Mordor or Sauron in the story, um, we must go into the transcendent story. There is a story that is beyond all of this suffering, beyond all of this death, beyond all of this chaos. And this is why people find the story so healing. Uh, The mystical story is healing because it's a transcendent story. It's a story that is um, coming at that what we always return to the the fusion of mythos and logos mm. logos is not giving up on 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 the cosmos logos is coming to get involved and uh, mythos is crying crying out like the psalms uh, for redemption and the transcendent narrative starts to speak of this glory which tolkien actually says in his poem mytho mythos to philo uh, mythos to mytho mythos which i mentioned earlier um, he, he specifically says the bards are able to kindle this legendary fire of things yet unseen, uh, of things that are coming, of a glory that is beyond the, the, the shadow mm. and veil of death, suffering, grief. Um, he, he's, he's, he's seeing with mystical eyes um, the light that is, mm. that is there in the darkness, because the Psalms, the Psalms tell us that even the darkness is light. Uh, for the creator and uh, that his his light infuses uh, all of darkness with with his presence if you're enjoying this episode of the myth pilgrim please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes if you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register In, in one way, Tolkien was able to speak the faith and communicate his Catholicism in a way that was not only accessible, but inspiring, and yet, in a way, subtle. Can you talk more about that, that sort of... There's two, there's two excellent uh, pillars of Tolkien that really touch upon this subtlety. And that's why Bishop Barron, the very loved Bishop Barron, um, if you go onto his website and type in Tolkien, you get about seven pages, <laughs> and he called Tolkien the master evangelist. Um, we actually sent a picture of one of uh, of Tolkien and Our Lady to Bishop Barron. So he actually has this devotional image um, in his possession. And uh, we sent one to his um, 
PA who's also um, working on canonizing Chesterton, which is a cause linked to Tolkien's cause. Um, but there are two things that are very subtle in Tolkien. The first one I want to talk about is specifically this pagan thing. In the Inklings, the Inklings were aware that the Christ, the end of Christian, Christian culture was upon them. The war had brought this about and also many other factors that Christianity was not going to survive to the next generation. So they wanted to find a new way of communicating the essential faith um, and the Christian gospel. So on the one hand, they wanted to go into a pathway of enculturation. They thought if we return to the stories that really matter, the stories of tradition, the stories of oral tradition, the stories that are recorded at the basis and the foundations of language, um, the old English language, the Norse language, if we return to what is the soul of the nation. John Paul II said, if you want to evangelize, you need to learn the stories. And so they learned the stories wow. and they thought if we can tell a story that is strong enough in its own art, um, this will be a way of communicating the essential truths of the gospel. But actually, as an artist, there were two things. There was this kind of intentional move towards an enculturation through paganism um, which would take a kind of more mystical communication that the truths would pass through the beauty the goodness of the writing and the second point on subtlety is specifically the fact that Tolkien when he set out in writing he didn't actually want to create a Catholic work it was an unconscious uh, move at first and then when he realized that his Catholicism was illuminating the whole project he said it is going to be conscious by revision and so he went back and you can see with some of his letters writing to Father Francis Morgan, for example, that he is bringing, bringing to light Catholic themes that came out of his own artistic vision. So it wasn't like he set out and said, uh, on the one hand, he wanted this program of enculturation, that, that he would saturate these old stories with truth. Um, but it was at the same time an, an, a, a, a subtly... Um, a subtly uh, unintentional, uh, but then intentional project, if that makes mm. sense. As we approach the end of our interview, I asked Danny about his involvement with Tolkien's cause for canonization. Here is what Danny had to say about that. Um, in 2017, that we had a real breakthrough, um, we organized with the Oratorians um, who took Tolkien in as an orphan. Um, those oratorians um, are still around today. They're the oratorians of Newman. Um, and there's a con direct connection between Newman and Tolkien for our listeners who don't know this. Newman had a pupil called Father Francis Morgan. And when Tolkien was orphaned, it was Father Francis Morgan who took Tolkien under his wing and uh, cared for him. And um, it was these oratorians in the tradition of Father Francis Morgan, they're still in Oxford today, who said, hey, we actually believe in the canonization of Tolkien as well. The provost, Father Daniel Seward, and uh, a bunch of us organized a mass where there were about 12 people. Now, 12 is a very good number in the Gospels. And there was just 12 people. And one of them was Tolkien's granddaughter, Joanna Tolkien. And together in 2017, they celebrated the Eucharist, offered the holy sacrifice to the mass, the mass that Tolkien really loved. He was an altar servant when he was young and came to adore the Blessed Sacrament and Our Lady. But that mass um, was attended by 12 people, was attended by Tolkien's granddaughter, Joanna Tolkien, and uh, it was to launch the canonization cause in a spiritual way. So that was 2017. And uh, that was a really, really exciting point for everyone involved in the canonization. And around that time, we also had a letter that was published 
um, that came from Father Daniel's uh, that came from Father Daniele Pietro Eccioli. He had written to the Archbishop of Birmingham, that's the diocese that Tolkien died in, and the letter said, you can spread a prayer for private devotion, and uh, we're aware that you're an international cause, so we're, we're, we're monitoring that. Um, so um, that prayer for private devotion, to be honest, has been going for about 10 years. I've got it in about eight languages, and I give it to anyone who's interested. Yeah. Um, that was 2017. 2018, um, another mass, this time in New York, a Missa Cantata, uh, with lots of young people there, and uh, it was uh, celebrated um, with much vigor and enthusiasm, also praying for um, the canonization course to open. And then in 2019, um, we got involved with a conference um, that was started at a grassroots level in England, but had international speakers, and that was to start the uh, movement towards proving the heroic virtue of Tolkien. Mm. And now, uh, with COVID, we're a bit uh, behind on um, c continuing the conference. We might have to do it online, um, but uh, the, the next conference is planned to be at Tolkien's own college. It mm. will be called Heroic Virtue 2021. That's the title that we're going with. Um, we do have a prayer for the canonization of Tolkien in about- Would you like to lead us? Maybe that's a great way to actually wrap up. Just, uh, yeah, maybe just lead us in a prayer for listeners. Would you like it in Finnish, French, Italian, Latin, Portuguese? Yeah. <laughs> Elvish. Uh, let's do it in English. So, uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O blessed Trinity, we thank you for having graced the church with John Ronald Rule Tolkien, and for allowing the poetry of your creation, the mystery of the passion of your Son, and the symphony of the Holy Spirit to shine through him and his sub-creative imagination. Trusting fully in your infinite mercy and in the maternal intercession of Mary, he has given us a living image of Jesus, the wisdom of God incarnate, and has shown us that holiness is the necessary measure of ordinary Christian life and is the way of achieving eternal communion with you in the daily Eucharist when heaven weds earth. Grant us by his intercession and according to your will, the graces we implore for the growth of Silverion and the Myth Pilgrim podcast and all the uh, attempts to canonize Tolkien that they would bring about a great victory uh, for our beloved professor, hoping that he will soon be numbered among your saints. Amen. Amen. So there we have it, folks. I hope that today has deepened your love for Tolkien and his spiritual legacy. Hopefully, between the two interviews with Danny, you've been able to appreciate The Lord of the Rings as something more than just a really good story and something quite prophetic for our times. I want to encourage you to tell people about all this. You know, from experience, most people just don't know that arguably the most popular story in the last century is in fact thoroughly Catholic. In this light, the practical pilgrim exercise I will leave for you is simply a question to ponder. And the question is this. Why is it that when Catholicism is presented as a set of ideas or lifestyles or morals, no one pays attention? But when it is presented as a story, the whole world flocks to her feet to listen. I will leave that one to you. Till next time, dear pilgrims, journey forth, take care and God bless.